0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Well With, All. Well With All believes that self-care is
1: community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Well With All's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Well With All.
2: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
1: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, financial relief for New Hampshire dairy farms, a Massachusetts doctor sues for the right to die, Cape fishermen hoping to put shark on our plates, and a toast to Narragansett beer, which starts brewing in Rhode Island once more. This week's regional news stories. Later, sweet wines for springtime, poke bowls for every budget, and a twist on the classic cocktail, the Manhattan. Our food and wine experts are here to tell us the tastiest trends hitting Boston. But first, joining me from New Hampshire, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Welcome, Arnie.
0: Promise me it'll warm up. Promise me it'll
1: warm up. <laughs> I yeah, why. well, I wish. Coming in from Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island. Hello, Philip. Hi there. And talking to us from Cape Cod, Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Kelly. I am starting with you, Arnie, because this is fresh off the presses, so to speak. The dairy farmers who had been seeking relief payments because of the drought actually got some relief by New Hampshire's legislature,
0: which is kind of surprising because we're so parsimonious. Let me re- redefine that term cheap. Um, <laughs> they were originally asking for three point six million. It turned out that the Senate passed two million, the House agreeing to a two million dollar sort of fun for them. Uh, It actually passed the House with a two-third vote, which is really kind of remarkable, 257 to 96. But let me just sort of explain a little bit about what's going on here. We have only 120 dairy farms left in New Hampshire. Each dairy farm has maybe 100, 115 cows. And last summer, 19 dairy farmers went out of the business of dairy. They may still have a farm, they'd be growing vegetables, but they're no longer able to have cows on their property. And part of the reason was we had one of the worst droughts in five years. They're getting less support from the feds. So there's just a synergistic effect of climate change and weather and support and to some extent a limit, limited amount of competition. But it really is unfortunate. And the commissioner of agriculture came to the House and Senate and the leadership and said, do you want to lose these farms? Because you will lose them forever. And they not only provide income to the state, they're also sort of how we sort of market our state through tourism. And it really is important to make sure that, you know, if something ever changes, even from a security perspective, and I'm going to add this, is that the idea of growing things at home is really important. May I repeat that? You want to grow things at home. You want to provide energy at home. Because as we're looking at this sort of very fragile world, the more that you know your state can do on its own, probably the better off you are. And it turned out that the New Hampshire House actually agreed to uh, putting in $2 million dollars into this fund. And just as a sidebar, Callie, I used to live in Orford, New Hampshire. That's where I raised my children. Orford, New Hampshire had one of the most remarkable dairy farms called Mm. the Tuller Farm. And we actually produced at the Tuller Farm the cow that produced the most milk in the world, Telemundo Max. Wow. And when Telemundo Maxima produced that incredible amount of milk, someone wrote me a note and said, wow, Arnie, Orford has produced two famous women, you and Telemundo. So obviously <laughs> right. this is a very important bill for me because I want that farm to
1: continue. Right. And did you be clear that those 19 farms you referred to no longer are producing wholesale, it's, it's a part of the wholesale milk business so people understand right. what's happening. And for me, that means that's no more good ice cream. So that's a, that's exactly. a that's a real crisis, uh, Philip. Philip, the drought has been an issue across the region. And, you know, we tend, I I have to say for myself, until it really got serious here in Massachusetts, I tend not to think of drought as a Massachusetts or Mm -hmm. New England issue. It's very bizarre. I think of it in other places like California, but not here.
3: Yeah. I mean, when I read this article, I I went and looked up to confirm things I, I had heard. And I found a CNN report from this year that said, not only was this the third consecutive year to rank hotter than all previous years, talking about 2016, it also means 16 of the 17 hottest years on record have occurred since 2000, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I wonder, are droughts part of the new normal here? And mm. this was packaged in New Hampshire, it appears, understandably so, is kind of a response to this freak weather pattern, or maybe it's not going to be such a freak weather pattern. I don't know. I'm not a climatologist. But for those of us who follow what the scientific community is saying about this stuff, you know, we've had a run of hot years and it doesn't seem to be letting up, which seems to mean that this may not be the last drought for uh, a so state in off, New England.
0: off the record, Kelly, just let me say something, notice what I'm saying this off the record yeah, so everybody um, can hear it. Yes. Uh, you cannot say climate change in a Republican-controlled House and Senate. So, you have to call it a freak weather incident, you have to talk about, you know, the price mm. supports, you have to talk about everything else, and you're probably right, Phil, but that isn't a piece of information that you can lay on the table because in some ways it will almost guarantee that the bill would have been killed there's got to be a way of repackaging it in such a way that Republicans can feel like they can embrace it because they can see the economic activity the benefit to the community the benefit to tourism what they don't want to publicly acknowledge is that this may be the new normal because if you say that then you have to say that there's something wrong with the climate
3: it's even more interesting, though, that a Republican-controlled house would kind of meddle in the free market like this. Um, and it was interesting <laughs> to see that Sorry. the – I'm forgetting the name – the the Center for uh, Prosperity, I think it was called, mm. was opposed oh, to this. Right. Talk about language. Was this ever called kind of a bailout? Because it, it is a bit of a bailout. Of course the, it was.
1: They said was, relief it was called, payments. It was
0: called a bailout. It was yeah. called everything you could possibly imagine. But here's the good news there may be a significant number of free staters and Tea Party folks that Americans for Prosperity could actually sort of argue that point but enough people have enough dairy farms in their community they understand Mm. the nexus to tourism this is really kind of our history I think there was enough emotional support for that that people really just kind of looked at them rolled their eyes and said well we'll throw two million this way and Chris the new the new Republican governor has already agreed to that he would support it so they didn't Mm. it, it may play well It just didn't win in the New Hampshire House or Senate, and I think that's because people actually understand this has greater consequences than a couple of dimes that we may be saving.
1: So, Paul, I'm taken with Philip saying this is probably not temporary and ongoing, and you folks down your way have covered a lot of drought-related stories, and I have to say it doesn't look like it's easing up here either.
2: Sure. I mean, I guess you call it a, can you call it a freak weather event when it's 10 years in a row? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, well, I guess we'll wait and see on, on that one. Yeah, of course, uh, you know, whether good and bad weather, whether dry weather or wet weather can have, uh, you know, a serious impact on everything from, as we're discussing here, farming to something that is near and dear to our hearts down here, tourism. And, and of course, a drought which translates, of course, to warm and, and dry weather, and a tourism economy is a very positive thing. But when it, uh, when you talk about farmers, and we do have some farmers down here, uh, typically uh, we have we have some uh, cranberry farmers. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it can definitely have an impact. And and what I was interested in was, you know, some of the opponents up in New Hampshire were pointing out that, yes, the dairy farmers were affected, but. Uh, Opponents said, you know, there were others affected uh, as well, including uh, peach tree uh, purveyors and uh, those who uh, have Christmas tree farms. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I wonder what the distinction is with dairy farms. And I wonder if it is, as Arnie kind of put her finger on, an iconic... New Hampshire feeling thing Uh, or maybe it's something else. Maybe dairy farms, you know, need the bailout in a short term because they need that bridge more so than say a Christmas tree farmer who won't go out of business if they just have not a bumper crop this year but have had good growth of furs and what have you uh, through the years.
1: Well, Paul, actually when I read the story I put cranberry farmers in there and said if this came up in Massachusetts I will tell you I feel very emotional about cranberries in Massachusetts. It feels to me like that's part of who we are in the state. And so I would want to make sure that those cranberry farms, and they're struggling even as we speak.
2: They are struggling. And uh, I mean, well, and it's a struggling industry to begin with, so any fluctuations can have a real damaging effect. Uh, Not, as far as I know, a lot of talk about any sort of subsidies for the industry. They seem to be bumping along. But again, it doesn't take much to put you under. and, And an industry like that, which is relatively small in the scheme of things to begin with, can really be hurt in a hurry.
1: Well, I want to move on to you, Paul, to talk about, you have kind of a cash crop of sharks down your way, and now uh, well, fishermen are talking about putting it on the plate so that we can eat it, and two species are skate and dogfish. I have to say, I've had a lot of skate, but usually overseas.
2: Yeah, well, because I think it's it's marketed overseas and, and is, has become acceptable there, not so much here, and uh, this past week, the uh, Seafood Expo North America uh, happened in Boston. This is, you know, if if the fashion industry has Fashion Week in New York City, in the briny halls of the convention center here in Boston, we have, uh, for seafood lovers, the marketing event of the year. And they get about 21,000 uh, attendees and exhibitors over three days. And this is really the event where the fishermen and and fishing groups come and try to sell to restaurants, to um, corporations, their products. And for the cape, two products that are uh, growing, or they're hoping will grow in popularity, are skates, which are, uh, if anyone ever sees the little skate shell on the beach, what they are actually are kite-shaped fish that are uh, in the family of sharks, and dogfish, which are small coastal sharks. They actually look exactly like a shark, they're just much smaller in size. And uh, they are in great abundance in local waters. And when compared with cod, which, of course, you know, Cape Cod, it's it's the iconic image of of the fish around here, that fishing species has been dropping like a stone for more than a decade. So the local fishermen are trying to take what they can get and market it. And so they were pushing uh, this week the skates and the dogfish interesting because some places are starting to warm up to it. You mentioned, Callie, that you could have skate overseas, Mm -hmm. no one thinks twice about it. Here at UMass Amherst, for example, the the food service director bought a, a great deal of, of dogfish, but when they put it on the menu, they called it, quote-unquote, Atlantic whitefish. So people wouldn't be freaked out. They did that last year, but it was so popular that this year they're owning up and saying, oh, yes, it is dogfish, and, and we're actually going to be clean about it. So uh, interesting, and they certainly hope it grows in popularity. You know, it's I won't say an acquired taste, but it's not dogfish is is a little fishy fishier yeah. than yeah. maybe say a cod but depending on how you prepare it you would never know the difference so if you you were having say a fish and chips honestly i don't know how you would know the difference uh, in some other ways as well
1: well, I don't I skate as I recall is not particularly maybe maybe it is but it No, not No, it really not. You no, know, it's really quite tasty and of course drowned in butter in France, you know what isn't good about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just ask this question. I know that they get some federal and state grants your piece said to assist with marketing of this. Is that in danger of being cut in the proposed President Trump budget?
2: Well, everything um of course is in danger of being cut in the, in the proposed Trump budget except the military. Mm-hmm. But I think that at this point, at least, the money is secure and, and the momentum is building that they have money to spend to market it. I think the question is, is less about money and more about turning the perception of some folks. We had one fishing expert talk about how dogfish is probably a couple years away from general acceptance in the U.S., mm.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with our regional roundtable guest, Paul Pronovo of the Cape Cod Times. You just heard him. I'm also with Arnie Arneson of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson and Philip Isle, who is a freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island. And to you, Philip, um, Gina Raimondo, the governor, is bringing in the dough and looks good, but people are critical of the fact that she, they say, Uh, according to the former governor, Lincoln Chafee, turning giveaways into the state into a candy store to entice this new business into Providence, into Rhode Island, rather.
3: Yeah. In Rhode Island, we are always eager, hungry, arguably desperate for good news. And some of that good news came recently in the form of a New York Times article by Catherine Seeley. And the headline was, After Long Economic Slide, Rhode Island Lures New Businesses. And it reads in part, at a time when states are fiercely competing to lure business, Ms. Raimondo, a Democrat, is scoring a string of successes. It goes on to say, Rhode Island reached a milestone in January when unemployment fell to 4.7%, the first time it had dipped below the national average in almost 12 years. Indeed, after Boston won the sweepstakes for GE, where they talk about how GE brought some jobs to Rhode Island. Other companies have been coming here, and what Uh, One state employee, the head of commerce, calls a hit parade, Johnson & Johnson, Virgin Pulse, Cambridge Innovation Center, there's some new construction underway. So overall, it was a highly positive article, uh, which not only talked about the state's success, but even mentioned Gina Raimondo, our current governor, in her first term, described her as a Harvard-educated, Yale-trained lawyer who was a Rhodes Scholar, who they mentioned
1: may be a candidate for national office. Who knows? But the bottom what, but line, the, unemployment fell to 4.7 percent. I mean, you people had been the poster child for high rates of unemployment.
3: We had. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I think some praise is definitely in order. The article did go to the other side a little bit, which talked about how the governor's approval ratings, according to some recent polls, remained fairly low. We have had this kind of ongoing scandal, brouhaha, involving this major $364 million uh, website project for public benefits that was rolled out kind of poorly. Um, yeah, we talked so, about you know, that on the show a uh, while Right, yes, right. Mm-hmm. What was interesting, you know, in addition to the former governors, well, with regard to the tax incentives, the governor Raimondo basically said, everyone else is doing this, it would be unwise of us to, to not play this game. But what was also interesting was the Commerce Corporation, which is a semi-public Entity, infamously in an earlier iteration, the one that brought 38 Studios, Kurt Schilling's failed video game uh, company, to Rhode Island. They promoted this article on Facebook using what we now know was a $50 amount of public funds. And the Republican Governors Association, uh, which is eyeing Rhode Island as a, a state that they eagerly want to flip in the next election, and in fact, the most recent election was quite close, criticized the administration for using public funds for the promotion of this piece, which promoted the state, but also, of course, talked about the governor. They called it a, quote, puff piece and said that, quote, utilizing taxpayer funds for PR purposes is not what the people of Rhode Island expect from their governor. So it just goes to show that, you know, no article is free from the politics of this stuff. And this ended up being a good story, but also a bit of a political skirmish.
1: Well, just to note that they uh, put an ad on Facebook, it looks like, and they probably should have found out that it cost $50 before they <laughs> got up on a kind of a high horse. Because but Can I
0: just say something? <laughs> yes. you know, Corporate welfare really works in the beginning. Yes. And it's not a heavy lift for governors to give away money. And that's the whole problem with the system right now is that we're willing to use public dollars to invest in these private outcomes. You we were just talking about the dairy farmers, remember, and right. how emotional this is. But you know, when when you looked at what the governor had to do when it came to that very complicated situation that actually involved the state and the expense of money to sort of organize, uh, what was the name of the thing, Phil, that she was supposed to be taking care of? Oh, that um, website, that, that, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that website. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and
0: everyone told her not yet, not too soon, you didn't hire the right, right. people. Right. That's really what governors are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be really top ranked administrators who are supposed to be making sure that that government flows properly when she did that she was not successful when she gives money away she is successful so I don't know about you Phil but I suspect you'd be really good at giving money away so would you Callie
1: if but I had some
0: that, then we are sometimes <laughs> running government and I think that's kind of the concern I have because it works And everybody loves corporate welfare until the money stops coming in and they're suddenly seeing their coffers being drained and they can't see government function properly.
1: I would add one thing. And, that uh, you know, Paul, you can jump in on this. I would would say that in addition to what you've just raised, a lot of people, the criticism falls to what did you promise as you gave away? Because it's not usually just money. That was the concern here for GE coming to Boston and GE made it plain that Rhode Island was a close second. In their decision, but they chose Boston, and so a lot of folks here who are critical of the move, though noting that it's going to bring you know a lot of uh, hopefully a lot of jobs and some other things here. What are we at risk for? Because we gave away so much. Well, I just would know, like to, to add too that yes. um,
2: governors are supposed to do a lot of things, and mm-hmm. and certainly I feel it's a funny thing that this the way this article was framed by Sealy, in the sense that, you know, she talked about the jobs creation and that's a good thing. Oh, but the, the website rollout it was a negative because it, it was a disaster. And, of course, as we know here in Massachusetts, ours was a disaster and the federal one was a yep. disaster, et cetera. it seems like. They're all disasters in the beginning. But it did feel apples and oranges. You're right, Arnie, I think that governors are supposed to keep their eye on the ball on, on things like that, but they're also they are supposed to bring jobs and companies oh, and, and stimulate the disagree. economy I and, don't disagree, and i think Paul. that so i i think and i hope and i don't know this for certain that you know a cost benefit analysis has been done to say if we give x we'll get y in return and y in return is worth it and if it's not worth it don't do it and i think ill-fated uh, 38 studios was a bad start and certainly bad publicity but the philosophy i'm not sure is necessarily bad and, and massachusetts would argue all day long that the, the bringing ge to Boston was was worth it. Mm-hmm. Will these moves be worth it? I don't know. Um, though I'll end with this. I think it's a little ironic that, that Lincoln Chafee was, you know, right. criticizing yes, yes. Governor Raimondo because I don't recover him covering himself in glory in his relatively short and stagnant curious
3: term. Uh, but
2: <laughs> I, I, I could be wrong about that. I,
1: I, I, Last I word, Philip. Add, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to add, you know, take, take Lincoln Chafee's comments with a, a significant grain of salt or the statistic that when he left office, his approval rating was about 25%. So... Uh, there's that. I will say that there's some truth to what Mayor Alan Fong of Cranston, who is expected to be the governor's GOP challenger, said when he said in this article, there's a real disconnect between how she is portrayed in the national media and how she's truly received in Rhode Island. Uh, for whatever reason, even while Gina Raimondo has gotten really glowing praise from outside of the state, her approval ratings are nowhere near, for example, Charlie Baker's up in Massachusetts. They stay fairly low. So there is kind of a disconnect here.
1: Since I get to say the last word for real, I'm just going to suggest that Charlie Baker's a man, and she's not. Moving on. That could be (laughs) it. Oh, God, that's sexism. Sorry, just got to say, (laughs) just got to put it on (laughs) the table. Paul, I want to go back to you because I'm very interested in this piece with uh, Dr. Roger Klieger, who is suing to get the right to die. And I'm interested because, you know, we had that big vote here in Massachusetts and people voted against it. So how is this working against that backdrop? What can he do with his lawsuit that that, the law being turned down was not able to do?
2: Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. Mm. What can he do? Um, I don't know exactly, Uh, Mm -hmm. but he's trying to basically legislate, not by ballot box, but through the judiciary, the right to die in, in Massachusetts, and we know that in in some places, well, the laws are different all over the place. In in some places, they're more uh, receptive to this concept. In Massachusetts, which, of course, as we all know, is fairly liberal in a lot of different ways, is still fairly conservative on this point. And uh, Dr. Klieger got involved in this issue and then became also the poster child for this issue. He suffers uh, from a terminal cancer, uh, a prostate cancer that's not been responsive to treatment, and he hopes that he's going to be leaving a legacy of having people be able to pass on their own terms. He has filed this lawsuit against the local district attorney, Michael O'Keefe, and uh, Attorney General Maura Healey, saying that they should not be able to prosecute doctors who prescribe fatal doses of sleeping pills to uh, aid terminally ill patients. Now, they have certain governing rules of how that would work. You couldn't just walk in and say, hey, can you give me a bunch of pills? You know, it would have to be several steps of process and and deliberation in order to make it happen. But again, it's something that has has not moved forward in Massachusetts. And I think certainly there are two sides to every issue. Anyone who has had an ill family member and, and seen them go through the pain and, in some ways, humiliation of not having any control over themselves thinks, is is that really a better alternative? And and we'll see where this lands.
1: Yeah. Can you tell? uh, Is there a lot of, well, you know, it's anecdotal support for what he's trying to do? You know, on the Cape, there's a lot of support, and, and
2: I actually had the opportunity to meet um, the doctor uh, about probably three months ago. He came to a, a speaking engagement, and clearly he's he's not a radical. I mean, he, he is someone who's very thoughtful and, and has a very clear philosophy, and I think there are a lot of people and a growing number of people who are inviting him to speak, listening to him and he's gaining publicity as well. I mean, we've written about right. him a few times, but I think he's also been in the Globe and in the Herald and in other places, so people are hearing more about it. So I do think he's gaining some traction. All that being said, that helps you politically. It doesn't help you necessarily in the courts. so we'll see where it lands um, as Paul, recently as... don't you as... think
0: one of the reasons why he decided to go to court is that it is about the publicity. It is about yeah. drawing attention. It's sort of another, another opportunity. It may not be a successful avenue, but it is an avenue, and it's an avenue, as you just pointed out, look at all the notoriety he's getting look at all the press he's getting and he is a remarkable person to carry the message he's a physician he now has a terminal illness this is personal for him he's seen it with his patients he's seen it with his own family and I think someone who has that kind of stature who also is suffering the consequences of an incurable disease is someone that you really want to sort of carry that and he may not be successful in court but I want to be sitting in court when it's being argued
2: and I should mention that too he is pushing few local lawmakers, and they're not alone by any stretch, to refile a bill, so-called medical aid and dying bill, in both the House and the Senate. I guess there are 46 sponsors and co-sponsors, including down here, brand new Senator uh, Julian Sear and State Rep. Dylan Fernandez, who is um, Kliegler's local representative. So, they're pushing politically and in the judiciary. Of course, they have some strong opposition. I mean, I mentioned that Massachusetts is liberal. Massachusetts also has a very strong presence of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and they are opponents.
1: And also, uh, the attorneys for both uh, the Cape and the Islands District Attorney, Michael O'Keefe, and Maura Healy, have asked the Superior Court judge to dismiss the suit, saying That's it weird. should be in the legislature, but as we know what happened when it went there before, but he's trying that route anyway, so we'll see what happens there. But that's very interesting. And I think the fact that he's a physician adds a little something to it. I do, too. And, and not to, you know, cast aspersions on him, but he's, he's not
2: Jack Kevorkian. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. Jack Kevorkian cool. came off in a certain way that I think people had a hard time trusting. Some people did very much, but others, just his persona was, was difficult. And Dr. Kliegler is, is very measured, clearly intelligent. And this is something he's thought through quite a bit. And of course, he's got skin in the game.
1: And for those listening who don't know who Jack Kevorkian is, he became somewhat famous for assisting without any law in place. He just challenged the law and assisted many people who asked to be assisted in dying. He was a real doctor. He got a lot of publicity for it, uh, including a major 60 Minutes piece and sort of undergirded a movement that had started by people who in some states, and now we know there are a few states that have actually passed these laws, who wanted the ability to do that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, Paul Pronovo of the Cape Cod Times, and freelance journalist Philip Isle, who is based in Providence, Rhode Island. We're talking about regional news you may have missed this week. I'm sorry I know about this one, Philip, the investigation of North Providence uh, Police Department dismissing a case saying that there was offensive behavior of a female officer, but no harassment. Now, let me just read one alleged mm. offensive behavior. The acting police chief, it says in this in this piece, sang bars of Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back to Lieutenant Diana Perez. She's the highest ranking female officer in the department's history. He also waited for her to come back from her medical leave to install her desk because she has a wide turn radius, he said, making hand gestures to insinuate her wide hips and butt. Here's one that's just delightful. During job interviews, another lieutenant aggressively gestured toward his crotch with both hands before suggesting a female candidate sit on his lap. Now, all of this stuff happened. She finally responded and took it uh, where she should to get some, some, some aid. And everybody in the department said, well, it's just banter. It's not really harassment. Help me with that, Philip. You really have to. I'm having a problem. <laughs> well,
3: I'm not sure. I and can by the help.
1: way, the officers did not deny making the comments. I need to put that on right. the table.
3: I'm, I'm not sure I can help <laughs> explain this away and simply report what is happening. Perhaps we should start with a Providence Journal headline from December. Uh, highest ranking woman in North Providence Police Department files harassment lawsuit against the acting chief. Uh, Lieutenant Diana Perez, who continues, hired in 2004, has been out of work on stress leave since April. So this happens, and this lawsuit, as I understand the situation, is still making its way through the court system. But in the meantime, the city of North Providence, which is a city of 32,000, a suburb of Providence, its own city, commissioned a $40,000 report to look into this, which determined, as you mentioned, Callie, that sexual harassment did not take place. I think this statement, which is a prepared statement by uh, the mayor, uh, Charles Lombardi, longtime mayor, is interesting. Yeah. Uh, The prepared statement reads, interoffice banter is okay or thought to be funny at times when we are all getting along until someone either does not like you anymore or is trying to protect themselves for whatever reason. So let's throw everything at the wall and hope that something will stick to justify their agenda. I do not condone this type of behavior." End quote. I'm not reading that because I think it makes any sense. Mm. I'm reading it because it's a remarkably dense and confusing, I don't even know, prepared statement. All of this doesn't reflect well at all on North Providence. And I was pleased to see that the uh, editorial board of the Providence Journal took notice just a couple days ago, writing, the court will ultimately decide whether Mr. DeSisto is correct. But a couple of things are already clear based on the news reports and the town commission report. One is that the town isn't denying that the incidents took place. The other is that those alleged incidents were surely harassing and demeaning regardless of whether they rise to the legal threshold needed to win in court. No city or town and certainly no police department should tolerate such behavior from its employees, especially those in supervisory positions. So there are no winners here. Um, I think it's a reminder that sexual harassment is legally perhaps a high bar to meet. But please, wherever you are in whatever workplace environment err on the side of just not making the joke or not doing
1: anything to push the envelope. Uh, these weren't Here's, jokes. I need to be these clear. Can I, can I make yes. a right. point? Yes, please. Here. Please are
0: One is that, in, <laughs> Phil, maybe you can tell me what the timeline is, but part of the reason why she went to the Human Rights Commission, part of the reason why she ended up doing this lawsuit is she constantly went to the town to complain and they dragged their knuckles. They did not look into it. Right. They didn't do anything. And it's because she got no response that she then had to go outside of administration and go to the Human Rights Commission and now the lawsuit. You know, this paper that came out, the 40 pages, when did that happen? That happened because she went to the HRC, because she went and sued them. That's why they actually even produced a report. Is this a, a cover-your-butt kind of report? Why did this happen? And then let me also say one other thing, Kelly, and I know you're thinking it because I'm thinking it. Mm. In the atmosphere that we are currently living in, yeah, with yeah. the person yeah. at the top of the ticket, and I mean the President of the United States, it's mm. even more disconcerting to see what's going mm. on here. This is why we have to stop it now. We have to talk about it now. We have to change our language. And when you treat the highest ranking, female Female cop this way there is no excuse for that you can have banter this isn't banter this is totally sexual in its nature and it's really done to marginalize and show your power that's what this is about it's a power play it's not even appropriate in any setting and
1: she's the highest-ranking female officer in the department's history to be clear and
3: and what's really unfortunate if, if I'm understanding the news article correctly the mayor in this news conference tried to portray this whole thing as a union grievance in other words, he tried yes. to say this was politics when the evidence of what happened was out there. We shall be following this. We'll follow what happens with uh, you, you this know, lawsuit. What, and
2: go ahead, Paul. Well, it just what, what astounds me is there's no mention of the protections under the EEOC uh, against sexual harassment. Mm. I mean, it, it's it seems so clearly defined. I mean, every single year in our place of employment, and probably most places of employment, we have to take a series of human resources. Tests to make sure that we're in compliance with certain things, and among them are uh, video uh, scenarios that are played out mm. in which you yeah. can see what to do or what not to do. And what you described earlier, Callie, I, I that's exactly the sort of things they would say do not do this under any circumstances. And I think that it just speaks volumes that the department did it not once, not twice, but it seems like time and again, seems like a culture of this and targeting. And how can you see it any other way? This particular person, for particular reasons, and I think that it's far beyond a, re- uh, a, a union grievance. It's, it's, it's a violation of Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 64.
1: It's all of and, that. And this
0: is a constructive firing. I mean, let's be honest here. They, they can't fire her outright, right, right. but they can drive her out. Right. And that's what this is mm-hmm. about. You they don't have. do this to someone that you want to embrace and you want to stay in the department. This is someone that you target because you want them to leave, but they technically, quote-unquote, have to leave on their own terms. Well, these are not her own terms. This is intentional.
2: And clearly yeah. this is not the final chapter of this. This this does not end yeah. here.
1: No, I'm uh, and I'm happy that she came forward, though painful that it was, and there are many painful parts of this story, uh, well. because that's way other people can talk about it. Because I think if when there is a culture embedded as it is, sometimes those people really think, everybody does this, everybody thinks this is normal. And then you have the response from outside of people saying, no, 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 we don't, you know. (laughs) know.
3: And kudos to the Providence Journal editorial board. You know, certainly I don't agree with them on everything, but I think editorial boards and newspapers really remain the consciences of their respective communities. And I I think they wrote a really excellent editorial here and, and they you know, made a public note that this isn't okay, that they
1: don't think this is okay. All right. Well, I think it should be more than kudos. I think it should be um, cheers, and that should be a cold <laughs> one, Phil, because Narragansett is <coughs> brewing in Rhode Island again. Uh, and, yes, it is. And uh, one of my colleagues said to me, what do you mean? I've been drinking 34-year-old beer in a, from a warehouse somewhere? Well, we should be clear that this is the first brew beer in Rhode Island by Narragansett in more than 34 years, right?
3: Right. We all know <laughs> Narragansett beer is this iconic beer uh, uh, Beer used to be the, the official beer of the Red Sox. High neighbor was this famous slogan. and But for a long time, uh, for decades, in fact, it hadn't been brewed in Rhode Island as it once was. And the brand was revived recently, about a, a decade ago. And more recently, uh, there is actually manufacturing of the beer uh, taking place in uh, Rhode Island. It's called the It's About Time IPA. And I should say, zooming out, It's part of a real uh, renaissance a boom in um, craft Mm -hmm. brewing that's happening in Rhode Island and, of course, I would guess in the state, everyone's state here in this conversation. Um, We've got Graysale in Westerly. We've got the Bucket Brewery and Foolproof Brewery in uh, Pawtucket. There's just a real uh, boom happening. And as the Boston Globe reports, uh, the New Isle Brewers Guild in Pawtucket, a collaboration between Narragansett, Newburyport, and several other brewers and distillers, opens to the public in April. It's a 15 miller. $15 $15 million project restoring 130,000 square feet of old mill space into a brewery and tap room with a courtyard for festivals and events. So, this is just a feel good story all around. And I've do, been doing this recently on the show, and I'm going to keep going. Yeah. If people want to come to Rhode Island, not only do we have great food, great seafood, but we've now got all this great beer. Uh, magazine I write for Rhode <laughs> Island Monthly in a recent issue. Or you can hear
0: today. me on Monday at Providence College, uh, Rhode Island College. So just to let you know,
3: <laughs> I'm going to be guy. in your
1: backyard on okay. Monday cool. sipping beer. So a, come a on down beer. to all okay. of you guys and, and let's
3: all beer. have a what beer.
1: Okay.
3: A, a local, a locally brewed right. beer together. <laughs>
1: well, we got to leave it there. I thank you all. Thank you so much for thank joining you. me. Arnie Arneson is the host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Paul Pronovo is the editor of the Cape Cod Times. And Philip Pyle is a freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island. Coming up is Rose So 2016. Our Toast Cafes coming to Boston? And forget flights of craft beer. This year, it's all about flights of caviar. Our food and wine experts are here to tell you where to splurge or save. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley.